We've been in a series this December, uh, kind of a different type of Christmas series. We've been looking at the Christmas story from a bit of a different angle. And it's this idea, this concept of what would it look like this Christmas if we made Christmas all about Jesus? Now, I know that you're looking at me like, well, that's what you're supposed to say. You're a pastor, and that's like the cliche thing, like Jesus is the reason for the season, and that's what it is all about. But the truth is, what would it really look like in our life today if we really made Christmas all about Jesus? Because I don't know about you, Christmas for us, it can be very easy where Jesus kind of gets moved to the side, and Christmas becomes about anything but Jesus. And so we looked at the Christmas story in Matthew chapter 2. And it's the wise men. They travel hundreds of miles from the Middle East and they come all the way to Israel into the city of Jerusalem and they find King Herod, who's king over the land. And they ask King Herod the question, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We have seen his star. You see, the prophet Daniel prophesied about the coming Messiah hundreds of years ago, that one day there would be a star in the sky, a star that would be different than every other star. And when this star appears, you know that God's son has been born on earth. God's son to be savior of the world. And so they travel all of this distance. We saw his star when it rose. And and this is the approach that we've been trying to learn as a church. What would Christmas look like this year if you and I approach Christmas the very way the wise men approached the first Christmas. We have come to worship him. We have come this Christmas to worship Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And so we've been looking at different forms of worship. The first part of the series, we looked at a very biblical form of worship about lifting our hands when we sing and when we pray to God, we worship by lifting our hands because our hands is a reflection of what's in our heart. That's why you see in sports, when you get very excited about your team winning, it's very natural to lift your hands because it's a reflection of our heart. Then we looked at a part of the Christmas story where the wise men brought gifts to Jesus. And in fact, when you look at every worship service In the Bible, you never see worship without the bringing of gifts to God, without bringing offerings to God. Giving gifts is a part of worship. This weekend, we looked at a part that may not be as obvious to many, but when you're going through a hard time, when you're in the middle of tragedy, and you're in the middle of pain and depression and loneliness, it's a very important form of worship, and it's pouring out our heart to God because God can handle the seasons of our life. God can handle the pain and the heartache that you and I go through, and we need him to pour out our heart too. Well, today we're going to look at a different one. And the reason we're, we're focusing on worship is because for many of us, we put all of this hope into what we want Christmas to become and what we want Christmas to be. And I don't know if you've ever felt the feeling the day after Christmas when you wake up the next morning and you feel kind of empty inside because everything you had hoped for and everything you had worked for and every all the energy you put into this one day of the year, just it didn't quite fulfill. It didn't live up to the expectation, didn't live up to the hype. And there's that, there's that little empty feeling you feel the next day. The reason is the only thing that will ever fulfill your Christmas is Jesus. 
Like we can make Christmas all about the tradition of presents and trees and dinner and family, and that's all good and that's all wonderful, but it'll never fulfill you like Jesus will. And the truth is when Jesus is in the center of your Christmas story, all of the other stuff takes on so much more meaning. It, it becomes so much more fulfilling. The giving presents to your children, the dinner, the family, it's all so much better when Jesus is at the center of your story. And the truth is you could be going through the worst circumstances of your life right now. You could be facing health challenges and financial challenges and relationship challenges, but with Jesus at the center of your Christmas, you can actually have the greatest Christmas of your life in the middle of the worst circumstances of your life. So here's the picture of Christmas. We've all seen the nativity set. Most of us, many of us have nativity sets at home. And if you've ever seen the nativity scene, right in the center of the nativity scene, there's a manger. And in that manger, there's a baby, and the baby's name is Jesus, and he's the King of kings, Lord of lords, Savior of the world. But for many families, what ends up happening is baby Jesus gets kicked out of the manger. I don't know if this ever happens in your home, but it's very easy in our family. We have young boys at home, and our boys will throw baby Jesus to the curb every chance they can get because they want Christmas to be all about them. And so Jesus is in our Christmas story. He's just not the, the main attraction anymore. Like Jesus is in the picture. He's just hanging out with the shepherds or he's over with the wise men, but he's no longer in the manger because our boys kind of, you know, children love to take that spot in the manger. And it's very easy for them to do it, especially in the world that we live in, because we, we put so much love and energy into our children and rightfully show but it's very dangerous when they take the place of Jesus in our Christmas story. And so I'll agree that Jesus is in your picture. Jesus is in your story. Jesus is in the scene or you wouldn't be at church on Christmas Eve. Like the very reason you're in church on Christmas Eve is because you want Jesus in the story. The question that I want to ask you today is, is Jesus in the manger? Is he the center of your story? Is he what the story revolves around and see what it's all about because he's the only one that'll fulfill it. Anything else will always leave you empty. You know, I saw a video this week that really drove home this point that I want to share with you tonight. So let's watch this together. Hey, Ed. Come check out my North Star Christmas tree topper at Levitate's. Is this a gummy bear? Yeah, we lost baby Jesus. Hey, check out these LED lights. I have them synced up to a 76-hour all-Christmas music playlist. There's my little Christmas DJ. <laughs> <laughs> so, are you waiting till Christmas is over so you can go buy a new nativity set when they're on sale? Huh? No, no, oh no. We lost baby Jesus like 11 years ago. Is, is baby Jesus always a gummy bear? Oh, no, oh, we trade it out every year. Yeah, like uh, last year it was a uh, tiny troll doll. <laughs> and the year before that we used a uh, dog treat. They were the perfect size, but <laughs> Dalton kept taking them and eating them. You, you mean your dog kept stealing them? No, my son Dalton, he loves those dog treats. Especially the peanut butter ones. There was one year that we used a, uh, a doll head. That was creepy. 
We, we made a modeling clay, baby Jesus. So the dog took that one too. Um, one year we got desperate and used an ice cube. That was a miss and a mess. Yeah, just seems like everything we try to replace baby Jesus with never lasts. Say that again. Everything we try to replace baby Jesus with never seems to last. And? And what? Say it again, slowly. Why? Just do it, dulcimo, slowly, do it. I don't understand what's happening. Just do it. This is getting weird. Say it! Fine! But when I'm done saying this, you're gonna march in here and you're gonna watch my star levitate. Fine, 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 do it. Fine. Everything we try to replace baby Jesus with never seems to, oh, yep, there it is, okay. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Funny, but true. I don't know how true that is. It's, it just seems like anything else you try to put your hope in, anything you try to build your life on besides Jesus, it never lasts. It never fulfills. It never, never gives you what you hope for. He's the only one that we can truly put our hope in. So today we're going to look at a different form of worshiping Jesus straight out of the Christmas story. In Matthew chapter 2, it says in verse 10, the wise men saw the star and they were overjoyed. You see, they'd been hoping for this for centuries. They'd been waiting for centuries that one day there would be a star that would appear that would signify God's son being born on earth. And they were so excited that it was finally here and they finally arrived. How many of you kids are overjoyed about opening presents tomorrow morning? I know my, my boys, they are overjoyed right now. Every day they're asking, like last night, can we open just one present? We've got plenty for Christmas Day. Let us just open one. They're overjoyed about open. How many of you would love to open a present tonight? Well, I can't make that decision for you. Only your parents can. Sorry to get your hopes up. But the truth is they were overjoyed. And it says, on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother. And look at Look at, look at how they worship. They bowed down and they worshiped him. They got down on their knees and they worshiped Jesus. They worshiped him. They bowed down. Now, just on a, on a side note, I want to I show you uh, something because I was actually where this took place. A few months ago, we had a team of us that were in Israel. My wife and I, we were with the team from our church, and we were in Bethlehem, and we actually got to go to the very spot that they believe baby Jesus was born. Now, you may ask, well, how do you know Jesus was born there? Were you there? No, I wasn't there. It happened a long time ago, and, and we can't say with 100% certainty this is the exact spot. But the reason we believe it's the spot is because we were told by somebody whose parents were actually alive when this took place and they were from Bethlehem. You see, we discovered this in the second century by somebody whose parents were alive. Bethlehem was a very small town. Uh, everybody knew everybody. Joseph was from Bethlehem. Everybody knew where Joseph's family lived. And so everybody knows where this would have taken place because, you know, again, in a small town, there's not many pregnant people at any given time. Everybody would have known the baby was born. And so we were told by somebody who actually had parents alive when this happened and who were in town when it took place. The next photo is us standing by where the manger would have been. Now, you can't see the home 
anymore because pilgrims over, over hundreds of years kind of took every piece of the home apart and took it home with them to remember kind of how historic and significant this location was. But this is where the manger would have been in the living room of the house. Now, you may be asking, why is there a manger in the living room? Well, because when you lived in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, you brought your animals in at night because you didn't want them to be eaten by wolves or bears or coyotes or mountain lions or anything else. I mean, the animals provided milk for your family and food for your family. And so you had to protect your assets. And so you brought them in at night, and that's why they put the mangers in the living room. So if they got hungry, they didn't wake up the family. They could grab something to eat without disturbing everyone else. And so just to let you know, Jesus was not the first baby put in a manger. Everybody kept babies in mangers because they made the perfect crib. Now, why am I saying all this? Why am I, I, I telling you all this? Because I want you to understand that the Christmas story, the stories we read in the Bible, they're not fairy tales. This isn't a book that begins by saying a long time ago in a, in a place far, far away or in a galaxy far, far away, these things took place. No, these are actual stories about actual people that took place in an actual time, in an actual location in history. And the only reason we know these stories is because of living eyewitnesses that were there that documented it. See, when you study the New Testament, the Gospels were documented and authenticated by living eyewitnesses. That's why it survived. You see, if anything in the gospel was made up, if anything was fictional or if anything was a fairy tale or if anything was a legend, there were people alive when it was written that would have said, no, 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 it didn't happen that way. The story would have been discredited and you and I would not be here tonight. The only reason we are here tonight is because these things actually took place. And they were documented by very real people who were alive. When you read the New Testament, it reads very different than Greek mythology and Roman literature during this time because it actually happened. In fact, Anne Rice, the famous historian, she was, she was a very outspoken, well-known atheist. Many of you know her from the Vampire Chronicles, not the greatest books, uh, but if you ever saw the movie Interview with the Vampire, that was Anne Rice. And she is very respected in the academic world for being a historian. Now, her, her, her books are obviously not true stories, but the history context of the book is. It's very, very accurate. She was always fascinated with the Jewish culture. How did the Jews survive antiquity when so many other civilizations never made it out of their time period? And so she began to study and research and read all about the Jewish culture, and she read all of Josephus's writings about the Jewish wars and the Jewish revolts. And she reads about the Temple of Jerusalem being destroyed in A.D. 70 by the Romans. And she's fascinated by this, and she wants to know more, so she decides... I'll read the gospel because she was taught, like every good atheist was taught, that the gospel, the stories of Jesus were written two to three hundred years after Jesus. That's how the stories turned into legends. Like Jesus didn't actually walk on water, but if you take a story and you pass it down from generation to generation to generation, the story grows. So she would believe, like, like most atheists believe it was written a couple hundred years after the time of Jesus. She reads all the gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and there's not one mention of the temple being destroyed. And it, and it boggles her mind. Like, why wouldn't they mention this? This was so significant to who they were. Jesus prophesied this. It would have given him credibility to at least mention it once. The only logical conclusion she could come up with 
is they were written before it was destroyed. Which meant if it was written before it was destroyed, these were not urban legends. They were eyewitness reports. And here's what she said. She said, when I began to research all of the, the academic critique against the Bible, all of the scholars who love to criticize and attack the Bible, she said, what I discovered was the most biased scholarship I had ever read. It was assumption layered upon assumption layered upon assumption. And it was one of the reasons why she gave her life to Christ because she could not figure out how all of these academic scholars hated this historical figure with such a passion that they never met. When there were a lot of other historical figures from history who were truly evil and truly did bad things. And she found Christ as a result. So I want you to understand that as we read the Christmas story, we've read it so long and we've seen it in plays and we've seen it in movies that at times it can feel like a fairy tale. It can feel like it's not real. These are very real stories that happen to very real people. And so you have these wise men. They come to Bethlehem and they come to Jesus and they bow down and worship. So let me ask you a question. When they bowed down to Jesus, I know you've got the nativity set at home. Was Jesus a baby when the wise men showed up? And the answer is no. Jesus was not a baby when the, the, the wise men are not in the nativity scene. I know they are in your nativity scene at home. They weren't in the original Christmas. You see, the star appeared when Jesus was born, and so they had to spend time researching the scrolls and the chronicles and the stories to figure out what is this star that appeared out of nowhere. And then they figured out what the star meant, what it represented, and they had to travel hundreds of miles to Israel. When they finally got there, it was two years later, the Bible says. So they're not bowing down to baby Jesus. They're bowing down to toddler Jesus. That's a totally different Christmas story. Let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever lived with a two-year-old? They're very unique human beings. How many of you, how many of you children in here have a two-year-old brother or sister at home? I mean, no, they're crazy, aren't they? I mean, they're just different. How many of you ever, how many of you currently live with a two-year-old right now? Like we currently have a two-year-old living in our house. Now, I'll be very honest with you. I used to be one of those guys when we didn't have kids where I would see the parents in the supermarket and their toddler would be throwing a tantrum and he would be lying on the floor in the middle of the supermarket, pounding his fists on the ground, screaming and crying. And the parent was, you know, trying to be their friend. You know, this makes mommy very sad when you do this. And, and it's like, you know, can't you get control of your child? I mean, what is wrong with you? And I used to tell myself, I will never be a parent like that. Like I will never, I'm not going to bribe my kids in public. I'm not going to give them candy when they throw a fit. Like I, I'm going to read all the books. I'm a pastor. I mean, I, I should know better. Like I need to figure. And I told myself I would never be a parent like that. That is until you have a two-year-old. How many know they will wear you down? Like when we used to go out of the house, it was like, you know, my wife and I, before we had kids, it's like, Hey, you want to go to the movie? Yeah, that's great. That's great. Let's go. And that, that's how we left the house. Very easy. Very simple. I mean, when you have a two-year-old, it's not that easy to leave the house. It's a 30 minute ordeal to leave the house with a two-year-old. Like it's time to go. Where, 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 where's the boy? There he is. Hey, come put your shoes on. I mean, they're like gone. Like, no, I don't want my shoes on. And then they're crawling and they're running and they're hiding and they crawl into these places in your home. They know you can't get to because you're too big to get in there. And so you're standing on the outside of this little hole with candy saying, come on out and put your shoes on. And it's a 30 minute process to get out of the house. I mean, two year old, I mean, it, it, that's just the way it is, isn't it? 
I mean, like, you cannot have ice cream until you eat all of your vegetables, right? Have you ever played that game with a kid? You're not going to eat ice cream until you And then it's like, no! So, okay, look. And then you start bartering with him. Okay, five pieces of broccoli, and then you can eat your ice cream. Five pieces. No! All right, one piece of broccoli. No! Fine, have the broccoli. What do you want? Do you want a card? Do you want a monkey? What do you want? Just shut up and give me some peace. I mean, that's what it's like with a two-year-old. Ever try to put a two-year-old on the ground when they don't want to be put on the ground? Ever tried that? They, they do that jelly leg thing where it's like, you know, and you're trying to get their knees to lock. I'm working on a technique right now where if you whip their little body just right, it can lock their knees in place. And then when you want to pick them up and they don't want to be picked up, my son has learned how to dislocate his shoulders. It's like, whoosh, and then all of a sudden you can't get a grip. Your finger like slide right off of him. This is the Christmas story. I'm telling you, you've got three wise men, three very smart guys coming and bowing down to a two-year-old, to a toddler. I know I've just ruined Christmas for you, but I want you to get a picture of what's taking place. They're bowing down and they're worshiping. And I know Jesus was perfect, but he was also two. He was also a toddler. So this, there's no telling what this scene actually looked like, but they bow down and they worship him. And that's an issue for people in our culture. Like, as Americans, we don't bow down. Like, like that's the British. Like, they've got the king and queen. They bow. We, like, we're not bowing down to anyone. That's why we got free of them. So we don't have to bow down to anybody. Like, we're the land of the free, home of the brave. You know, I'm going to be who I want to be. I'm not bowing down to no man because bowing down is a sign of weakness. You know, it's, it's like, how many of you watch the UFC? I love the UFC. It's one of my favorite sports to watch. I know it's probably not the best sport for a pastor to watch, but I love the UFC. I mean, it's a great sport. I mean, and one of the one of the things, if you ever watch a, a fight in the UFC, one of the things that that you can do is if you are getting killed, if like blood's coming out of your head and you're just getting totally destroyed, you have an option to do what they call tap out. Like you can tap out and make it all go away, make it stop, make the beating end. But to tap out, you've got to admit that this guy is stronger than me, he's better than me, he's killing me, that I'm the weak one. That's what bowing down is in our mind. Like if I bow down, I'm admitting weakness. I'm admitting that, that you know, I'm just not going to give up control of my life to anyone. So we've got an issue when it comes to bowing down. You know, for men especially, we, we really, when you think about it, we only get down on our knees twice in our life. We do it once when we're getting married, like we want, we want to propose to our wife, we'll get down on our knees and pull out the ring. And we do, we, and really the only reason we bow down there is because of the prize at the end of it. And, and that's, that's, the reality. And then the second time we bow down in life is when we're children taking photos for sports. I mean, remember your football picks, your soccer picks, your, your baseball picks. There I am, eight years old, getting down on a knee for my soccer. I and mean, wasn't I a good looking kid? Let's just be honest here today. Come on, we got to tell the truth. We're in church. Wasn't I good looking? I don't know what happened since. I mean, it's been downhill ever since, but at least it started out well for me. But we bow down for, for, for you know, we, that's just not who we are. Well, the Bible says in Psalm 95, come, let us bow down in worship. The wise men came to worship Jesus. We are here Christmas Eve to worship Jesus. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. We surrender our life to Jesus. He is the king. He is the Lord. He's in charge. He gets to call the shots. 
You know, I don't know if you've ever heard this or not, but if, if you take the message of Christianity, if you take the message of the Bible and you reduce it down to one statement, the, the entire message of Christianity can be summed up simply in this, Jesus is king, we are not. I don't know if you've ever heard that before. You know, for many of us growing up in church, that's not what we were sold. We were sold fire insurance. We were sold, just say this little prayer and you get to go to heaven, don't have to go to hell. That's kind of what we were taught growing up. But the reality is the real message of Christianity is Jesus is king. We are not. Jesus gets to call the shots. Jesus gets to be Lord. Jesus is ruler. Jesus gets to take hold of your life, your priorities, your values, everything you love, everything that's important to you, and he gets permission to rearrange it all to reflect he's number one. That's what it means to make Jesus the Lord of your life. I know that's very different than what we thought. We just thought Jesus was there to bail us out of trouble. Jesus was there to make, make our life easier, make our life better, you know, do this for me, do that for me. He's king, and we're not. And we lay our life down for him. See, here's, here's really the invitation of Christianity. You have an opportunity. You have this privilege, this opportunity to come and absolutely surrender every part of your life to him. That's the invitation of Christianity. Come and lay down your life. Bow down before Jesus. Make him king of kings and Lord of lords over your life. And here's the truth. You're either going to bow down now or you're going to bow down later. But you're going to bow down. Everyone, you may be an atheist. You're still going to bend a knee to Jesus at some point in your life because everybody will. Paul said in Philippians 2, being found in appearance as a man, that's the Christmas story. Jesus came and was born as a little baby. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. That's the Easter story, even death on a cross. So therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, one day the clouds will break, Jesus will return, and there will be a heavenly host of angels declaring his name. And when they say the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, look, I know you don't want to give up your rights, I know you don't want to give up your freedom. I know for many of us, we don't want to give up control of our life. We don't want somebody to be king and Lord over us. But can I tell you, Jesus will be the greatest king you'll ever serve. Because everything he'll ask of you will be for your best interest. It'll be out of his love for you. And here's the thing. We serve a king that knows how to bow himself, that knows how to submit at the end of his life, in Luke chapter 22, the Bible says Jesus withdrew about a stone's throw beyond his disciples, and he knelt down. He bowed down. He got down on his knees, and he prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. But not my will, but yours be done. He got down on his knees for us. He had to wrestle to submit and surrender his life to the Father on our behalf for our benefit to be our Savior. You see, we were born to live. We were born on earth with a purpose, with a destiny. God put us here for a reason. Jesus was born to die. That was his purpose. You see, if our greatest need had been information, then God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure as mankind, then God would have sent an entertainer. But our greatest need 
was forgiveness. And so God sent a savior. God so loved the world that on Christmas day, he gave his son, Jesus, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. We're going to close the service tonight with, with a candlelight ceremony. Because when Jesus died, he became the light of the world. I'm going to ask my team to bring me my candle. You know, we celebrate. Oh, we, there we go. We celebrate. We're going to let it light. There we go. Come on, you're, you're better. I know you know how to light things. Just kidding. You know, we celebrate candles for a couple of reasons. We use candles at birthday parties. Well, this is Jesus' birthday, so we're celebrating his birth with a candle. Candles represent illumination. Here's the thing. You go into the darkest place imaginable, and the smallest light will always defeat the deepest darkness. The smallest light. Jesus, in John chapter 8, said, I am the light of the world. I want you to watch this for a moment. It doesn't matter how dark the room becomes. Light will always defeat darkness. Go into your darkest closet at home tonight and take the smallest, faintest, dimmest light that you can find. Turn it on and tell me if you can see the light or not. See, the truth is I've never seen darkness win a fight against light. Light always wins. Jesus is the light of the world. His death became our hope. His death became our light. This is what Christmas is all about. He was born to die to become the light of our life. And so I'm going to ask my leaders to come forward. And what we're going to do is I'm going to show you how the light of Jesus spreads. It starts by his gift and his sacrifice. And then all of a sudden, the disciples took the very light that Jesus started into their heart and into their life. And then the disciples, they took their light to the early church, the early Christians. And then the early church took the light to the next generation and the next generation took the light to the next generation and on from generation to generation, the light of Christ spread from heart to heart, from life to life, from person to person. All the way up into 2019, the light has been spreading. At some point in your life, somebody that took the light from Jesus, that took the light from that person, that took the light from that person, that took the light from that person, shared that light with you, and there's now a light in your life. And what I want to do is I want to illustrate what happens when we allow the light of Jesus into our life 
And then we share that light with those that we love, our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends, our family. And I want you to see what the world begins to look like as the light of Jesus spreads. Would you stand with me now? And we're gonna sing Silent Night together. Silent night, holy night is called all is right round your virgin mother and child. see how beautiful the room looks right now with all of the candles. Can you imagine how beautiful the world would look as the light of Jesus continues to spread from heart to heart, life to life? Before we close, I want to pray with you for just a moment. Would you just blow your candle out quickly and close your eyes with me? If you're here and you have never made Jesus the king of your life, you've never come to Jesus and say, listen, I surrender. I invite you to be king. I invite you to be Lord. I invite you to take charge. I I bow down before you. Before we leave tonight, I want to pray with you. 
I'm not going to ask you to do anything or go anywhere or even say anything out loud. I'm going to ask you to make a prayer in your heart tonight. God will respond to your heart. And the prayer is inviting Jesus to be king over every area of your life, to make him the Lord, to make him the ruler. See, the reality is we cannot invite Jesus to be our savior. We invite him to be our Lord and he becomes our savior. He can't save you unless he's in charge. He can't save you unless he's calling the shots. But you give him the wheel, he can save you. And so we invite Jesus to be the Lord of our life, the king of our life. And by inviting him to become the king of our life, he becomes our savior. So with every eye closed, I'd like to just pray for those of you who would like to make that decision to receive the greatest Christmas gift you'll ever receive. And that's the gift of Jesus. The gift of having a king born in your heart lighting your life up with his light. So with nobody looking around, every eye closed, if you would like to pray with me very quickly, I would like you to just raise your hand so that I know who I'm praying with and then put it right back down right now. Thank you, 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 thank you. In your heart, I'd like you to pray this. Say, Jesus, tonight I invite you to be king of my life. I understand that means you get to take total control. But I offer it to you. I surrender to you. Forgive me of all of my sins. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for grace. Thank you that I walk out of here tonight forgiven. I don't have to carry the shame of my past anymore. My shame is gone. I don't have to carry guilt or regret anymore. I am forgiven. In Jesus' name, amen. Those of you, come on, let's give them a hand. Those of you that prayed with me, I want to encourage you to take another step on your own. We'd love to be a part of it, but you've got to take the step. And that's get involved with a great church. We have incredible churches all throughout North County. We'd love to help you find one. We'd love to invite you to be a part of ours. We love our church. But if it's not the right fit, we want to help you find a good church. It's the most important decision. You cannot do this journey without a church. That's, that's according to Jesus, not us. You need the help and support to live for Jesus. So let us help you find a church. We're going to close with one song, have a little bit of fun, and we'll be...